0: All right, welcome to Launchpad Podcast. I'm Aaron. I'm Matt. I'm Matt. Today we are going to do some awesome stuff. We have another comic book creator with us. We have an artist today, Graham Nolan, man. He's worked on some amazing stuff. I can't wait to have him on the show. And this kind of is rounding out our werewolf conversation we've been having with the creators of Nightfall, the guys who wrote Drew and drew the covers for Nightfall. We got them to talk about werewolves because they are not only awesome comic book creators, but also big monster fans and and werewolf fans and creature movie fans so that's right up our alley and and we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about today
1: well the moon is full dude let's get into it
0: all right ignition sequence start six five four three two one three all women. Look up. we have a lift off. All right, we're here, Launchpad Podcast.
1: We have Mr. Graham Nolan in the house. Mr. Nolan, thank you so much for joining us, at the Launchpad.
2: Well, appreciate the invite to your den, there, boys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I was friends on Facebook with Mr. Nolan for a while, and I think I friended you just before this past October. So, probably mm-hmm. either early October, late September. And your feed every day in October was a different picture of a different creature from, you know, horror movies going all the way back from like, you know, forties, fifties all the way to today. And mm-hmm. I was I, I was loving every day. Like I don't really use social media the way it's supposed to be. I just think I'm funny, so I probably, I write funny things on social media. But I gotta <laughs> admit, man, I was trolling your feed on Facebook to see what your new creature would be and you put up a couple that I was like, wait a minute. And I, I don't remember which one prompted me to actually contact you. But I was like, wait, you know that movie? And then we kind of nerded out a little bit about some horror movies. And I was like, all right, I was at some point going to try to establish a relationship and bring you on to talk about the many, many awesome comics that you've done. But I was like, forget that. I'm not, we're not going to do that right now. Let's worry about these horror movies. Let's get this guy <laughs> on and talk about horror.
2: Yeah, you know, I do that every year on, on Facebook. I think this is my fifth year. Uh, it's the 31 Days of Monsters countdown. So starting October 1st, I post a new and different monster, talk about it a little bit. Some of them are great films. Some of them are really bad films, but they're just fun monsters, you know. So a lot of people don't know these these films, like From Hell It Came, you know, The Walking Tabanga. Um, you know it's basically a tree you know all you need is an axe and a a set of matches and monster movie over (laughs) it's a fun movie because it's just so bad you know so these are the kind of things I'll post I'll also post you know classic you know uh, universal films and uh, uh, AP films and you know just all kinds of stuff you know whatever strikes my fancy or or what has a cool image I'll post uh, various monsters of
0: that's super fun. One of the ones Matt got super excited for, because us at the launch pad, we love watching some some fun creature features. But sometimes, like some of the the ones that aren't as good, are are fun to kind of watch and make fun of. But one of the ones that he saw that you posted was Boogans, which we are big <laughs> fans of Boogans.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I I didn't hear about that movie until uh, relatively recently. It was on another monster site. I was on, looking at videos uh, for sale. Um, because uh, I'm always trying to increase my library, you know. So uh, I came across this one from like I think it's 1980, 82, uh, 80, I think, mm-hmm. uh, was Boogins. So I read the the outline of it and I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. So I ordered it and I watched it and I was like, wow, this is this is a really really cool little movie, you know. Uh, real snow, you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you, you don't see that when everything is like powdered stuff. It always looks fake, you know. And and this is like real snow and they. Uh, and the monsters were cool. The people were cool. Uh, as I mentioned when we were talking off the air, you know, the characters you care about, you know. And, and that's an important aspect of
0: of of a good monster movie. Absolutely. Well, you've done some amazing stuff. Like, one of the big things, we love talking to people about, about comic books. And we love lo- talking to comic book creators and comic book artists. And you are a heavy hitter for a comic book artist, man. You worked on Batman during the Nightfall series and you had a big hand in co-creating Bane and especially designing what he looked like and mm-hmm. I'd love to ask you a few questions about that what, what was it like Wh- where did you start with a character like that
2: Bane's background stuff had already been established by, uh, by Chuck and Denny mm-hmm. uh, so when Chuck and I talked about what this character was going to look like uh, I knew that he was Latino I knew he was born in Santa Prisca to serve a sentence for his father so you know that aspect of his history kind of led me down the path for his design because I figured if he was going to wear any kind of costuming, you know, what would he be exposed to? And the closest thing costume wise I could think of was a Mexican luchador look. That's awesome. So that's where that came from was the fact that he, you know, was growing up in this little, uh, you know, Central American prison.
0: He's so iconic. He's become one of Batman's biggest villains since then, appearing in movies and cartoons and TV shows. and. Multiple comic iterations. And like when you guys were writing this, did you know the impact that this was going to have on on the Batman mythos?
2: You never do. You always hope every time you get up to the plate, you're going to hit a home run. But that rarely happens. But we knew that Bane was going to be big as far as uh, Nightfall went, you know, because he was the catalyst for it. Uh, He had to be. Once Nightfall was over, you know, we just figured that was it. You know, he might pop up here and there. And then all of a sudden he pops up in that uh, uh, horrible Batman movie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to bring that up. I was interested to see if you were going to
0: say it.
2: Oh, and in the animated series, too, you know, which is one of my favorite iterations of Mm -hmm. the character.
0: Yeah, very Uh, cool.
2: I really love that. Henry Silva doing the voice and the the accent. They gave him the luchador look, you know, like from my original design with the nose and mouth exposed.
0: Yeah, they took it farther in the cartoon than in the comic book, which which was a nice touch. I really, I mean, the, the cartoon did such a great job of really cementing some of these characters to me. Like when I think about that character, the first image that comes to mind, I think Matt, you would agree, some of them are from the cartoon and not necessarily the comic book. Mm-hmm. Well, you
2: know, the 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 mask design in the cartoon was actually more of my original design. Oh, cool. My, initial bane design for the mask was it had that white outer rim around the features that we know Mm -hmm. but his eyes his nose and his mouth were exposed uh like a true luchador mask
0: oh Uh, interesting
2: cool yeah i I wanted to be able to have him emote um you know grit his teeth and stuff and and i I was thinking of the functionality if you ever wore a halloween mask with no nose cut out uh it's hot and you can't breathe You know, and that's why the luchador masks are open like that, too, because the guys are exerting themselves and they're sweating and stuff and they got to be able to breathe. And so I was thinking of it from a practical standpoint. So uh, so that was kind of cool when I saw the uh, the animated series do that. It was like, oh, okay, cool. That's that's really neat. And then when Chuck and I got to do Bane Conquest recently, Mm -hmm. uh, I did a hybrid. I did. uh, I like the idea of the eyes being covered with the red lenses but I brought the nose and a mouth out again and that was fun for me but the fans didn't seem to like it they they like the classic
1: <laughs> person. Well you know how us fans are we like we like the way you tell us the first time for the most part yeah, we don't, don't really like change
2: I know I found that out <laughs>
1: <laughs> But let me ask you you're you've been a comic book fan for a long time and one of the the characters and the properties that you liked before you even got near it uh, personally, was the Phantom right?
2: Yeah, yeah. The Phantom was my mom's favorite character uh, growing up. She she read it in the newspaper when she was a kid. Um, I didn't see a lot of there wasn't a lot of Phantom stuff when I was growing up because our newspaper didn't carry it, uh, and Charlton had limited distribution. So I sporadically would see the, the the comic books, but I always liked the concept of them of this and and that prototypical costume. I thought was really cool.
1: It it is, and I think. I would love to hear your thoughts on something that you cared about as a fan that you then got to touch as a creator. Mm -hmm. Like, how did was that like a dream come true, or did you feel stressed out, or how does that feel to to love something so much and then be given it to to put your mark on it?
2: Well, well, Batman was my first love, you know, and then and I always wanted to draw Batman, and then when that opportunity came, it was you know it was a dream come true. It never got me nervous or anything like that, because I, I knew who Batman was. Mm. I mean, I, I, I dreamt about this character and watched the TV show with Adam West and stuff and read the comic books. And, and I knew who this guy was, I knew what made him tick. And I knew everything there was about him. So when I got to draw him, you know, it just came out very naturally. And I didn't have to overthink it. So that, that was really cool.
0: That's awesome.
2: The Phantom wasn't a favorite of mine. It was my mom's favorite. I enjoyed the character because of his history and, and all of that. I was getting out of comics around uh, 2000 uh, and wanted to get into comic strips. And I ended up getting a, uh, a strip called Rex Morgan, M.D. from King Features, which was a soap opera strip. And when the head of the, the cartoon editor, Jay Kennedy, uh, offered it to me, I said, well, what I really want to do is The Phantom. And he said, well, we have no openings on the Phantom. So I took the Rex Morgan gig. And then a month later, he calls me and says, well, we got an opening on the Sunday Phantom. And I'm like, okay. How oh, so cool.
0: <laughs> yeah. Easy, easy choice. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, since, I mean, you were such a great creator and a, and a great artist on all these big titles. But like we were saying earlier, you're a monster fan. You're, you, you're a big creature movie fan. What was your introduction to like horror movies and creature movies? What got you started into all of, all of that world?
2: I was, I think six years old and, uh, I got to watch Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Oh. My mom, my mom was doing laundry and I wanted to see this movie. And so it was probably on early evening one time. And, uh, she said, okay, you know, I don't want you to get scared and have my nightmares tonight. So we had, I had to watch it with the lights on while she was, you know, <laughs> in, in, uh, I was laying in her bed and in, in, in the bedroom, watching it on this tiny little Sony TV, you know, it was about <laughs> six inches wide, but, uh, that one really lit me up. I was like, oh, my God, monsters, you know, and I was so into monsters as a kid, making Aurora model kits, reading the oh, Monster yeah. Times. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember the Monster Times. It was a bi-weekly or uh, I think it was bi-weekly newspaper devoted to monster movies and, and 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 comics, too. It had sections on comics. So I started seeing advertisements of comics and comic characters in those monster magazines, which sort of, you know, let me in that door, too.
0: I had never heard of the Monster Times. It's very interesting. I'd have to look into some of that. I bet it has incredible, like, was it black and white? No, they had uh, one or two color stuff. Okay.
2: It was printed on newsprint, just like a newspaper. Wow. It would fold out just like, uh, uh, you know, the New York Times would. And, you know, they even had, you know, that type of uh, New Times Roman uh, uh, type font on it. It was really, really, really cool.
0: Well, since you brought up Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, this was one of the ones that we specifically planned to talk about. And mm-hmm. I think this movie is fascinating because it really sets up what so much of our modern cinema is, which is a, uh, the idea of a shared universe. Everybody loves this idea, mm. the, the Avengers, the Marvel shared universe, and you know all these different people trying to create universes. Well, the Universal Monsters did it first.
1: Yeah, this yeah. is 1943, and this is the first time that... Um two universal monsters came together in the same movie. Right. It's amazing. We have uh, Lon Chaney Jr. is again playing the Wolfman. We have Bella Lugosi this time playing Frankenstein. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you guys know that there's like a, I don't know, I want to say controversy, but controversy about how and what Frankenstein was in this movie. So it was related to the ghost of Frankenstein. Right. Where he, uh, Frankenstein eventually becomes blind and deaf. So at the beginning mm-hmm. of this movie, Frankenstein was, they, they shot it and they 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 thought, they wrote it and shot it and acted it as if Frankenstein was deaf and blind. So when you watch right. some of the performances that Lugosi gives, it looks awkward and he definitely does that Frankenstein stumble that now has mm-hmm. become so iconic to the character. But part of that at the time was because he was acting like he was blind. But then they That's kind correct. of, they say, yeah, right? And I didn't, I didn't, this I didn't know until I started researching it for the show. But then they scrapped that you know, during the post process when they were editing. So there's times if you watch the movie, there's times where you can see Lugosi mouthing something, but they killed his audio to keep to keep him more to the original canon of the original creature.
2: Well, it, it, it actually went further than that. Um, uh, it went before a test audience and they laughed.
1: Oh, I didn't hear that part.
2: Yeah. That's why they removed all the dialogue and all references to the dialogue because Lugosi played Igor the character he uh, originated in, in son of frankenstein the mm-hmm. last of the of the uh Karloff films and then in ghost of frankenstein cheney jr took over the mantle of the monster lugosi reprised his role as as igor and then he wanted to have his brain put into the monster so that he could live forever and, and, and be done with his broken neck and all that kind of stuff but he ends up going blind because their blood was not compatible and the last scene is the monster burning up and he's blind and, but but now it's Lon Chaney's mouth that's moving, but it's Lugosi's voice that's coming out.
0: Oh. So the nat-
2: the natural next movie was to have Lugosi actually play the Frankenstein monster, so that he could articulate the the dialogue in it, uh, in his voice. But when the monster started speaking in Lugosi's voice, you know the audience started to laugh, and they said, and they decided, well, they're going to take all that reference out, and uh, that's why you get that the arms out like he's you know, the, the the classical Frankenstein walk, like right. you had mentioned, but it really isn't classical. I mean, Boris Karloff's is classic. I mean, that Frankenstein moved. He ran. He, you know, he had right, motion. Right. You know, he wasn't a a lumbering automaton like he was from this point on.
1: Right. Which is really interesting, too. And I don't want to jump into it just yet, but there's something else that happens in this movie that sets a huge precedent in in, in the Wolfman universe, but...
0: Have you ever heard any of any of the examples of Bela Lugosi speaking as the Frankenstein monster?
2: He does in uh, in the other movies. Uh, okay, in the other movie, Ghost of Frankenstein*.
0: Now I want to go back and watch that uh, to find out why they were laughing and see if I can catch why what the what the big deal was.
2: Yeah, you can find the script online, I believe, with with, with the written dialogue for what he had to say. Interesting. But there's no there's no recorded, at least found yet. It's like the Holy Grail, Yeah, trying to find some the actual recorded dialogue, because if they did that and they could splice it in, that would be awesome. I would love to see that. I know there was some interplay between um, Talbot and, and, and the monster where there was actually some satire and humor, too, mm. and, and that would be really cool. But you know what? Here's another thing. Once you know that the creature, the monster, was blind, towards the end of the movie, when Patrick Knowles powers up the monster again and... Lagosi gives that look is when his, his vision comes back. Right, right. And that's when he gives that really, really scary look in his eyes, like almost evil. You know, like, this is Igor again, you know.
1: Right, right, right. That's really cool. Well, this movie is really, really great, and I love I loved it from the get-go. I think the scariest part is pretty much the first scene. There's a couple grave robbers yeah. who are robbing the the Talbot mausoleum, and Talbot is Lawrence Talbot, or the Talbot family, who was the original Wolfman. And uh, these two grave robbers are robbing. They open up his casket and they're trying to pull a ring off his hand. It's two guys. And right. his hand shoots out and grabs one of the guys on the wrist. And it was probably one of the coolest reactions that I can imagine. And Aaron, I thought of the other day, you and I were talking about how you love realistic brain trauma yeah, yeah, portrayed yeah. by actors and it was like if i got so scared like if if a someone that i presumed was dead grabbed me i don't think i would yell like you'd expect a man to yell in a horror movie mm-hmm. i think i would just like freeze up and he looks at his at his at his 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 friend and he's like help me help me yeah. and he's like terrified and the other guy just bolts and mm-hmm. you know the guy who's caught presumably gets pulled down and killed but he just freezes and he can all but like barely muster help me Help me. And I was like, oh, damn, that is kind of scary.
0: It was really cool.
1: Yeah,
2: it the, is. It's it's the best opening of any of the u- Universal Monsters, uh, with the possible exception of the first Mummy.
1: Sure. OK, um, I, w- I would be I would I would subscribe to
0: that. I, idea. I might give that to you. Yeah, the, I, the, I keep thinking about them. A lot of them have quite a bit of exposition first right. uh, outside of maybe the first Frankenstein. But yeah, this is this is a damn good one for and sure. This is a good oh, movie, yeah.
1: too, because it like you said, I think this this like. This, like any good crossover, assumes that you have a passing understanding of each character and doesn't spend too long explaining them to you again. Um, right. Like literally in this movie, 11 minutes in is the first werewolf transformation. And first of all, this, and this is what we I was hinting at earlier, this is the first time we actually see the Wolfman face dissolve yeah. from human to wolf. In the Wolfman, we actually don't see him turn from human to wolf. We see him transition back from wolf to human. And it's pretty good for what was it, forty one? I think. Um, forty one. Yeah. But for f- this one, it's beautiful. He's laying on a pillow. His face stays in the exact same position for each step of the transition, mm-hmm. and also the pillow itself doesn't move. Like a lot of times with stop motion and those type of effects, you can see background changing.
0: Yeah. Deep this evolve, looks yeah.
2: tight, man. This is and it. That's because that pillow is plaster of Paris. Is that true? Yeah, it's it was a solid. solid Oh,
1: how amazing. Where
2: did you get all this information,
1: man? You do know your stuff.
2: (laughs) I've read all kinds. of. I got scripts of these things, uh, you know, monster magazines, uh, you know, monster times. I could have read it in. Who knows?
1: That's incredible because it really I mean, yeah, that makes total sense. But it looks so good. And he holds that pose. And each new appliance that they put on looks really good. And I was watching it in like pretty high definition from a movie in 1943, because even as a special effects guy watching it as a special effects guy, I'm still in love with the story and, and, the, and the transition. Rumi, does that feel like an effective transition to you?
0: Oh, I love it. And 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 especially because werewolves, I, and we've talked about this on uh, about werewolves, is that the transition is, is the key moment. That's mm. what in any werewolf thing, that is the moment you want to sell. Because it's one thing if you have great makeup... Uh, or a great puppet or a great, you know, even even in modern times, you have a great CGI uh, werewolf. It doesn't matter if you don't sell that transition. That transformation is key. That transformation is like what you need to see to make that stand out from any other werewolf movie. And
1: it's crucial to the character, right? Frankenstein yeah. is not a transitional creature. Absolutely, Vampires aren't exactly, for the most part, yeah. werewolves. It's so important to show that change. That's the most important part of of the mythos
2: the thing about the wolfman though is that he was always very very conscious of his appearance because <laughs> in, in the wolfman when he turns into the wolfman he's all buttoned up got a nice long sleeve shirt buttoned <laughs> at the wrist it's His his collar is buttoned up and everything and then when he goes and he creates mayhem and comes back uh, to Toblet Castle you know, he's a wreck, but he's changed again. He yeah. changed not only <laughs> physically, but he's changed his clothes.
0: <laughs> yeah, the the werewolf, they always have him, you know, like the, the werewolf of London song. Yeah, uh, I saw him drinking say. a pina colada at Trader Vicks and yeah. his hair was
2: yeah. perfect. Yeah. <laughs> now now of course the Lawrence Talbot Wolfman has nothing over the uh, uh, werewolf of London, yeah, who not only wore a jaunty little cap. <laughs> but uh, had, had a wonderful scarf and an and overcoat, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> I like the hat. A wonderful scarf. Uh,
1: Mr. Nolan, tell us, this movie, I think, has a really good plot. It's got a really good idea for why these two characters would eventually come in contact. Do you want to tell like like what, what starts this off? What starts off Lawrence Talbot, his journey, of, and how he eventually crosses over into Frankenstein's world?
2: For one thing, this was technically the sequel to The Wolfman. It was written by Curtis Odemack, who mm-hmm. wrote the original Wolfman as well. He was told to write a sequel. This really is the story of L- Lawrence Talbot as opposed to Frankenstein, even though. You know, Frankenstein gets the head credit here. So we really pick up a few years later, after the death of Lawrence Talbert by his father, who hit him in the head with a silver cane. And then the father we find out died of heartbreak and is buried right there in the mausoleum next to Lawrence. Uh, the grave robbers come in, they disturb the grave in a full moon cycle, and Larry is revived again as the Wolfman. And all he wants now is to actually be dead, right. which makes him very a very sad character. Because when you see him in the first one, in The Wolfman, he's a guy, he's this guy who's come back to America, you know, to this crappy little town, Llewellyn village, I think it was, Mm -hmm. in uh, Wales. His father's a very stern autocrat. The the brother was the prodigal son and, you know, he gets killed. So that's what brings Larry back. And, you know, he's kind of been raised in America. So he's got this American uh, idealism and stuff. And then it just gets beaten down by the curse, you know? Yeah. And, and so by the time we see him in the second film, he's this morose guy just looking for a way out. And then he finds out, I think it's through the gypsy, right? Maliva, doesn't mm-hmm. she tell him about Dr. Frankenstein and his yes. experiments? Yeah. Cause he goes health.
1: to, he goes to her to try to find a way out. And it's, It's like you said, his whole motivation in this movie is to kill himself, is to die. Mm. And they don't beat around the bush. Like, they don't use allegories. He multiple times says, I just want to be dead. And other characters look at him. There's actually a point later on where someone else says, oh, yeah, he's crazy. And Maliva, the the gypsy woman, says, he is not insane. He simply wants to die. And, like, that's flat out said multiple times. And you're like, wow, that's our protagonist's motivation for this movie
2: is to be dead. And then, yeah, she
1: says, I know someone who can help you.
2: Of course, they find out that Frankenstein is dead. Uh, He's a persona non grata in in the village. Sure. (laughs) uh, For very obvious reasons. But his his doctor in London, who first treated him uh, for the head wound that he had, has been following him because he thinks he's insane. Doesn't believe in the werewolf aspect. And then he gets involved and like all doctors who read frankenstein's book notes they decide i can do it better oh yeah (laughs) and instead of draining the energies from the monster or from larry talbot into the monster i think they wanted to drain the life out of larry talbot somehow and drain the life out of the monster too because they didn't want him coming back right but he switches it over and from plus to minus and minus to plus. Right, yeah, there's a lot of plus and minus <laughs> Where polarity. Are science stuff. Is there. <laughs> it reminded me of
1: like the same thing of like when you jump a car, they say not yeah. to put negative to negative. Yeah. Because then you'll get like a freaking Frankenstein car. <laughs>
0: <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I always wondered like when I first saw this movie as a kid, I always was like, uh, is Frankenstein going to turn into a werewolf too? Or like, are we going to have like oh, a, a undead werewolf awesome. fight now? It's like, but it didn't happen, but I, that's what I thought they were trying to do at the time.
2: <laughs> yeah, that That's a really great sequence when the monster powers up again. Yeah, oh, it's but great. great. Uh, you know, he gains his sight, even though they don't mention it in the film, but we, now that we know it, you know, and he just has this evil look on it on his face. But you know what? I always since that's the first monster movie I ever saw, and it's my first introduction to the monster Frankenstein. I always thought of him as sort of the hero, yeah and and I felt the same way about Larry Talbot too, because when he was human, you know he was a stand-up guy. but when when he first turns into the Wolfman, he gets those shifty eyes that dart back and forth and stuff, and you can see the the light of reason has gone out of his face, yeah, and now he's this feral creature and that was, I, he was one of the scariest, mon- he wasn't my favorite monster, but he was the scariest monster who really scared me as a child. And I was never really scared of Frankenstein, but I was scared of the wolfman in that movie.
0: There's definitely an unpredictability that comes with the wolfman you don't know because of, he's an animal. There's there's a chaos right. to it that you just don't know what how he's going to react. I mean, I've been around dogs that, you know, you're you're taking a hike through the woods and you see a dog and you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. Is this dog going to be friendly? Is he going to be... like? that's just scary in its own right but if you have an animal who you're guaranteed there's a bloodlust and and he's coming to hunt you like that's creepy and and the wolfman is, is such a great character for that because when when the moon is full and he goes full animal mode you have no idea what's going to happen next you don't know who he's going to kill whether it's going to be you know somebody in the town or one of his best friends or somebody that he knows like that's that's the the big appeal to me of a wolfman
1: right and you had in the in the original wolfman you at least had the pentagram shadow on the hand of your next victim. So you at least knew who was coming where in this one, it could be anybody. There was no pentagram, uh, warning <laughs> to tell who was going to be the next victim. Right. The last three minutes or so of the movie is the actual fight of the two creatures. And it's the movie, I think is about an hour and 13 minutes or so long. The last three or four minutes is finally when the Wolfman breaks his bonds and starts the fight. And I got to tell you for a 1943, in some giant soundstage where they're like knocking over things. There's there's a time where the Wolfman is on like a bunch of, uh, like a platform. Yeah, and like the Frankenstein's monster grabs the crates and throws it and all of the crates go flying and he falls off. It's actually like a pretty well staged and well blocked out fight for that. And I feel like Frankenstein fights like how I think Frankenstein would fight. And the Wolfman keeps like springy jumping around he jump. he keeps going up on things and then jumping <laughs> at the at the frankenstein's monster which i think is pretty yeah. awesome because that's how he would fight
2: yeah because he finds out early on that he's no match for the monster yeah. you mm-hmm. know uh because when they have a they had you just for, right from the get-go when the monster's powered up he busts those leather straps like it's it's uh, it's a uh, toilet paper sure but when the Wolfman fires up, when he becomes fully Wolfman, you could see him struggling at those things, and he's fighting, and eventually he, he pops them off, but it's a lot harder for him. So that's a, a nice visual indicator to the audience, you know, who the powerhouse is here.
1: So you're saying that the Wolfman was the underdog? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's funny, because, you know, the, the, the movie, I don't know, well, spoiler alert a giant dam blows up and all this water takes out the castle. they're fighting and right as they're going to clash again. So there's no clear victor there. So you don't really know who wins. So I guess my question to both of you is, who do you think wins? Aaron, who do you think wins in that fight? If there's no dam explosion, who wins?
0: I don't know, man. I, I know one guy can do the doggy paddle. I don't know how good, I don't know how good Frankenstein can swim, honestly. I mean, to, to joke about it, but I, I don't know how good... How... What if
1: there's no water, though? If it's just a straight up brawl, who wins?
0: I think Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Really? Yeah. Oh, see, I thought it was hands down Wolfman, Graham. Yeah. You, you, I mean, you think it's it's Frankenstein too? I do. Yeah. Why, why? How come? His
2: unearthly power. I mean, he, his strength is like you know a hundred men. He never runs out of energy because of the electricity and all that kind of stuff. The Wolfman is still, you know, even though he's supernatural, they indicated pretty pretty early on right there that, that Frankenstein was was brute power. But how do you kill something that's not even alive? Yeah,
1: see, I feel like... See, I'm going to stick... Maybe that's just just because I'm skinny and scrappy. Or I used to be skinny. I'm at least still scrappy. But I feel like, especially the way it's portrayed (laughs) there, the wolfman is so fast, he's jumping around. I feel like he would hit and fade, hit and fade, hit and fade. And I feel like he could literally take Frankenstein apart. If he started chopping pieces or gutting pieces out, Frankenstein would become less effective. I agree with you guys. And actually, the way that I thought of it, the frame in my mind was... In the scene in uh, Sin City, A Hard Goodbye, when Marv goes and tries to fight that scrappy little guy, Kevin, with the nails, mm-hmm. and he handcuffs him to himself and he goes, Let's see a dance around now. I feel if Frankenstein could handcuff the Wolfman to himself, fight over. There's no way the Wolfman yeah, if, could if, do anything.
0: If you could compress them in, into a smaller space. I feel like once Frankenstein
1: yeah. grabbed the Wolfman, that would be it. There'd be no, that, the fight would be over. But I feel like the Wolfman would keep doing those lunge attacks, lunge attacks.
2: Did you ever read Jeff Rovin's book, Return of the Wolfman? No. Oh, oh it was an awesome book. Uh, it takes place, it's the sequel to Abbott and Costello Meets Frankenstein. Okay. A- and it takes place uh, in modern times. Uh, with uh, the descendant of the insurance woman taking property of that castle, the Isla Murata castle, and the Wolfman is still there. He, uh, Larry oh. Talbot is walled up, cemented behind this wall, and he gets out, ends up getting released. Um, and Dracula comes back. The monster is down there too, uh, because you know he was on, he fell through the through the dock, and he ties. All that stuff in together into with all the mythos and everything. What made me think of it was that there's a sequence where the Wolfman and Frankenstein are fighting and, you know, he's writing it from a modern sensibility as far as like what a werewolf can do as opposed to what an actor can do with werewolf makeup. You know, so mm-hmm. he has he has him fighting the monster in like dead skin getting ripped off and stuff like that. Oh, wow. nice.
0: And this is a, a novel. Yeah. And what, what was the yeah, name that it's it's-
2: Return of the Wolfman?
0: Wow! See, I'll have to look that up because again, it sounds like another added piece to the shared universe of the Universal Monsters.
2: Yeah, yeah, he ties in. You know, he mentions uh, John Banning. You know, who was in the the, the Mummy's Hand. Uh, he mentioned, you know, all these like characters and stuff. They he just ties everything together. You know, it's really cool. That's awesome. He even mentions Chick and Wilbur, the two clerks who are now off, uh, who have joined the Foreign Legion, i.e. tying it into Abagastel will join the Foreign Legion. You know, (laughs) it's it's fun stuff. That's funny, (laughs)
0: is that even in their parody sort of fun movie, they, they still are leaving it as canon. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. We could talk about these movies all day long, and I would love to. But Mr. Nolan, you had suggested talking about a different werewolf, I guess, medium that we don't talk about as much, and that is the comic books, and specifically, you had said Werewolf by Night, mm-hmm. which a Marvel book, and I, I've dabbled in it. I've read it a little bit, mostly when he was in somebody else's stories, like a mainstay story, like Avengers or a Doctor Strange or a Daredevil. Right. At your suggestion, I went back, and I went back to the beginning, like Marvel yeah, Presents. The stuff. Oh, my God. And I gotta say, not only did you influence my childhood with your giant Batman run, but thank you for culturing me now in werewolf comic books. Yeah. If you guys haven't read any of the original Werewolf by Night stuff, it is... Incredible. It really is something else. We have Jerry Conway is writing. And mm-hmm. like you said, Mike Plug is doing the art for the first, I don't know how many issues, but a good chunk. And it is, yeah. it is great. What would be yourself for that, Mr. Nolan? How would you, someone who's never seen one of those books, how would you describe it?
2: Well, visually it, it's like Will Eisner is doing a, a Wolfman story. Mm-hmm. It's a classic universal style werewolf take. It's just done well. It doesn't have to be new and different. It just has to be done well to be entertaining. Mm. Uh, and and that thing is done well one of the first comics I ever bought was werewolf by night number 18 and it had a purple cover and it had the werewolf by night fighting a black werewolf yes on a cover yes Uh, and then a girl and they're on a roof and and there's a girl on the parapet there you know like scared fighting for her life you know as Mm -hmm. the two werewolves are are teeing off against each other i saw that cover and i couldn't get my quarter out fast enough to buy the damn thing (laughs) because it was so great i was like oh
0: my god monsters fighting, I gotta have this comic. (laughs) That's the thing, is in all the werewolf iterations, like, one of my favorite things, and I often joke about it, but Wolfman versus Wolfman is, like, one of my favorite fights you could possibly have, and anytime there's two werewolves fighting, I'm so in for it. It's, I don't know what it is, but it's, like, a weird genre that if you can get two werewolves fighting in a movie, I'm so down.
1: In that storyline, it's, that werewolf is his neighbor, Yeah, who also has a curse, right? And so, yeah, it's his neighbor, um, and the werewolf by night accidentally smashes through his wall and messes up yeah. the the séance thing he's doing which turns him into a werewolf they fight right. for like an issue or two and then there's a third werewolf that goes after them and they repel the third werewolf and realize that they're kind of like werewolf brethren they also fight there's an issue that starts with werewolf by night on the moon fighting two zo- uh two vampires <laughs> and one of them is dressed like dracula but it's established it's not Dracula. He's just dressed like Dracula. Then, and yeah. this this is this is something that happens a lot in these books. Is it they're told non linearly. You start the first page or two are the pretty much the end of the third act, and then it reverts and says, "Okay, this is how this story started." And they're fighting on a soundstage essentially. Yeah. So it looks like, and it, the whole cover says, "You know, werewolf on the werewolf versus vampires on the moon," and you're like, "What the? F- I got to read this."
2: Yeah. And there's, oh, yeah. it's really
1: just a soundstage, but it's still awesome
2: he'll it, never change back he's on the moon yeah which is like you're like oh that's
1: awesome and even he the, the cool thing and the way it was written is you have first of all you have Jack Russell who is
0: which I'm a, I'm a little on the <laughs> fence about that but hey you know what I'll, I'll buy it because the rest of the comic is so cool
1: well it's and it, it is it's it's a, I mean it works for Marvel at the time this is uh, the the characters created in 1972 Jerry Conway I've read interviews where he said he didn't remember doing that on purpose and it's like dude How did you not do that on purpose? Like, are you kidding? When you're reading the book, it's told past tense narration from Jack Russell's point of view. So when Mm -hmm. he's doing action as the werewolf, he's saying I, but he's also saying the wolf and he understands things that are happening that the wolf does not. So the wolf doesn't know his best friend is his best friend. He does. He's trying to struggle with the wolf half of himself to not hurt Mm -hmm. certain people and stuff. But it really is it, it, it really is awesome the way that they tell the story through Jack Russell's consciousness. Yeah you know? the inner
0: monologue of, of him always maintaining that while the animal runs loose and he's sort of a prisoner in his own body trying to wrestle with those mm. those feelings and those actions. I think that's a really interesting way to tell a story from from that perspective.
1: What of this book resonates with you Mr. Nolan? What stuff from this book specifically is like stuff that 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 you love? Whether it's about comics or about werewolves or about horror?
2: Number 18. The That's first the one? one I ever bought. Oh yeah. yeah. Problem I had with Werewolf by Night was that the covers were always better than the inside. Yes, yes, <laughs> you yes. yes. I'd get this great cover, and then I'd open it up, and I would see a C-list artist, or, you know, working on it, or even writer, you know. It's but but the early run was great because you had Jerry Conway and you had Mike Plug and and that stuff was fantastic.
0: I read the ones that when when Matt told me to start getting into these to to be to beef up for this this interview, I read issues 31 through 33, which is one of the introductions of Moon Knight, and. I thought this was a really cool, big out brawl, but it's it, it really cool because it starts like in this snow run and you're like werewolf on a ski trip. But it's actually really cool because he's like, hey, I know that now that we're trapped here, the weather gets bad. I'm going to probably have a bout of being the werewolf for a night. So they leave him out in the woods. But then like one of the neighbor's little girls goes out into the snow. <laughs> a
1: little girl named. buttons Buttons, yeah she gets lost (laughs) in the
0: snow and this big like him stalking her and then his best friend realizes what's happening and he's like oh no zips out into the woods and ends up like basically taking a beating from the werewolf almost to death just to save this little girl and it was actually a great couple pages where you're like oh man this guy's gonna kill his best friend unknowingly because he's protecting this little girl and i was like that's a really cool Device. Yeah, this
1: is this is number thirty-one. It's written by Doug Mensch and uh, Don Perlin did the pencils and the inks. And it's one of those issues where the cover does show what's happening in the book. So it's the were, the cover is the werewolf uh, about to pounce on this little girl, and the whole the whole first act is is he's going on a ski trip. He meets this his friend best friend Buck. It's his girlfriend's daughter Buttons, who's an adorable little girl who everyone <laughs> immediately falls in love with, and they can't stop talking about how much in love they are with her. But then this is something that happens often in these books is as a werewolf, he almost kills somebody in cold blood. Even if it's a bad guy, he usually either pulls back or some deus ex machina happens where he doesn't outright kill someone in cold blood. So that way he maintains his humanity. And there's, oh, that's a big thing theme that run, runs through these books. But in this one... It's one of those things, like you guys, well, Rumi, you know I love Daredevil. Um, Mr. Nolan, Daredevil's one of my favorites, but there's times where he fights somebody or he's with a bullseye or something, and he's about to pull that trigger, and you're like, I know he won't, but he won't, right? And this whole Mm -hmm. book, he's almost going to kill this girl, and you're like, Mm -hmm. they're not going to let him kill a little girl, right? And you're like, right? But
0: he's a werewolf, so you don't know. And then his
1: best friend is there, and you're like, well, this is a a very important character to his mythos. He's not going to kill him now in issue 31. But at the end of that issue, it is really in contention whether this guy's gonna live or not. And they're showing it's interesting and it's 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 interesting too, because this is in the seventies. The comic code is a thing, but the the rules have kind of laxed a bit to even allow werewolves. Werewolves weren't even allowed back in the day, but mm-hmm. there's not a lot of blood, although they talk about the blood. They say, I think he said at one point I slashed and my claws were wet. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. oh man, that's some good writer right there.
0: Yeah,
2: it's good pulpy.
1: Oh, description that's a good that's a good pun right there a little pulpy claws but that issue ends the girl gets saved but his best friend is and in the, the best hospital is, yeah. when he turns back into jack russell he doesn't remember he remembers bits and pieces of stuff so he has no idea that he mauled his friend possibly to death then the next issue issue 32 opens with him getting his ass absolutely kicked by moon knight who is a brand new character this is his introduction to the marvel universe and he is a warrior covered in silver. Which I think is a great concept for this book. For fighting
0: right? a werewolf, yeah.
1: It's, again, one of those books that starts with the Act, thir, the, the act 3 action. Yeah. And then he says, like, you know, he's getting, he's getting punched. He's getting punched with, gold, with silver gauntlets that have silver studs on them. And he's just getting his ass kicked. His hand is broken.
0: The, the, whatever the Moon Knight's batarangs are. The little the crescent shaped, yeah. yeah.
1: And they're sticking out of him. Yeah. Uh, it's, like, it's amazing. And then it cuts back in time. You learn that... Moon Knight, uh, Aaron, why don't you tell us Moon Knight's origin?
0: The The thing I think it's funny is they were like, hey, uh, you're you're a mercenary. We got uh, 10 big ones for you to hunt a werewolf. Uh, you down? He's like, yeah, sure. I'm in. And they're like, you got to wear this suit, though. And he's like, all right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it's a great comic and, and I really do appreciate you turning us on to this. I'm going to have to find more issues and find more stuff to read. But as far as like comics go and werewolf go, have you ever gotten to work on a werewolf property?
2: Yeah, yeah, I created uh, Joe Frankenstein which had a werewolf mm-hmm. character in yeah. it uh, that uh, Chuck and I worked on together. I got to draw a, a werewolf in that. What's the difference between that werewolf and any other werewolf? He's he's the monster's chauffeur. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his name is Finnabar, uh, and they have a long history together. He takes care of the monster during the days and 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 the monster watches his back at night he's an interesting character because you know he smokes you know because what does he care he's not going to die yeah so you know he's one of these uh werewolves that just has you know kind of a crappy outlook on life (laughs) <laughs> you know, and, and it's funny, the monster has a better outlook on life than he does.
0: <laughs> That's funny. That is interesting. Yeah. The The Joe Frankenstein character, what is his background? Where did the, the monster come from?
2: Joe is is a modern day kid. He's the great, 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 great grandson of Victor Frankenstein. And the monster is the original monster created by uh, Victor Frankenstein, who he sort of found religion in a way that, you know, like when he was running through the hills, he ended up at a monastery. And there was a priest there that taught him about life and death. You know, he started to feel he needed to do an act of contrition for the sins he had committed by by basically killing Victor Frankenstein. So to atone for that, he has watched over the Frankenstein family for hundreds of years. And Joe is the last surviving member because, you know, there's a world below that people don't know about, you know, but the monster knows all too well. The bride is is after the last surviving Frankenstein member because the codex is in his blood for eternal life, something the bride has denied. So she is after anybody who carries that, and Joe is the last one. So it all comes to a head when she finds out where Joe is, and then the monster has to basically expose himself after all these years to to the family member and let him know that the world isn't what you think it is. You're not who you think you are. And basically tells him his story about who he is and now what's happening in his world.
1: I got to tell you, one of the best things about everything you just said is now having spent about an hour talking with you and talking with Mr. Dixon the other day, I can just imagine the two of you just creating this amazing world together and just having a blast doing it. And... You know, when you when you watch a movie, when you read a book, when you read comics, when you see something that was done with love by people who really care about the things that they're doing, that comes across in, in what you're mm-hmm. doing. And whether it's Nightfall or or um, Bane Conquest or uh, Joe Frankenstein, mm-hmm. we we as the fans, we as the audience can see that you guys are just having a blast doing this. So from from all of us, thank you for just knocking it out of the park so consistently.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that kind of stuff where we're really into it and it's not just, you know, an assignment or a job. The phone calls are a riot. You know, we we're, we bounce stuff off each other. Like I came up with the idea that the monster has, you know, you see these windmills popping up everywhere. These that for electricity, those modern day windmills. That's the monster's hideout. He's got he's got them all over and, <laughs> and he's got this whole underground thing. I said, we got to have a scene where, where the vampires attack the monster and burn down the windmill, you know? <laughs>
1: oh, my God. Classic.
2: <laughs> then Chuck came up with this idea where the bride has this luxury apartment. She owns the whole building. And with all the experiments and shit she does, they, they're always losing power. And so finally, the tenants in there are sick and tired of paying high rent and losing their power. And so they meet in the stairwell, and they're gonna go upstairs with their flashlights, otherwise known as torches, and rush the bride and want their rent back or something like that. So you know, there's like a sequence <laughs> where they're they're going up the stairs with their flashlights, you know, saying.
0: <laughs> it's it's like a, a new <laughs> take on Let's the classic torches. Around, yeah. you know, stuff like that, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, 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 that's that's really fun. You know, it's it's those fun little things. You know, that's so great. Um, well, we've reached about an hour, so we'd love to give you a chance to plug. What are you working on now? Where should people look for your stuff? If they want to read some of your books, Where what what should they be looking for for our audience?
2: My, my current project is, is another creator-owned project called, appropriately for this show, Monster Island.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I,
2: I did the original Monster Island 20 years ago. We're doing, uh, I've paired up with Ominous Press, and we're doing an actual hardcover oversized art book of the original oh, artwork so wow. you get the full story and it's shot from the original art just like those uh, idw books are shot you yeah know so you see the blue lines and the pencils and all that kind of stuff. uh character designs and then there's an eight there's new eight new pages for the which is the prologue for return to monster island oh,
0: cool. which is the
2: long-awaited sequel so actually that monster island book is at the printers now it's being printed and bound right now. I'm working on uh, return to monster Island, working on the artwork for that. Uh, and that uh, we'll have a Kickstarter coming up for that uh, uh, within uh, probably about a month or so. Um, so after all these years, people are going to find out
0: when I was a kid, I was way into Jurassic park. And when I found out there was a monster Island uh, that, that you wrote, that's what got me in. And I found a couple issues of that at my local comic book shop. And I'm, I'm very excited to hear that there's a sequel to monster oh. Island coming out. <laughs>
2: Oh I've wanted to do I've had this thing plotted out for years. This is basically going to be four stories. It was Monster Island, uh, Return to Monster Island, Escape from Monster Island and Battle for Monster Island. Those so, those will be the four graphic novels uh, that will tie the whole Monster Island uh, world together.
0: I'm super excited. That's so awesome. Yeah, we'll, that,
2: we'll be there for sure. Yeah,
0: definitely. So if
2: anybody listening wants to check these out, yeah. you can go to visit monsterisland.com
0: Okay, visit monsterisland.com Do you have a social media handle that you'd, you'd want us to plug?
2: I'm on Facebook as Graham Nolan.
0: All right, great. So, guys, you can follow Graham Nolan on Facebook. Uh, visit Visitmonsterisland.com to check out the new Monster Island books coming out and that big art book coming out. Those things are super cool. If you guys don't know what those are, take a look at them. IDW's done similar things, but they're super cool because you get to see the original art, the original annotation, and then get the full story. So keep an eye out for that, Monster Island. And... Guys, you can keep up with us on our Twitter, our Instagram, and our Facebook at LaunchpadPod and our website, LaunchpadPod.com. Mr. Nolan, thank you so much for coming on Launchpad. We really enjoyed talking with you. We hope you'd like to come back and talk to us again about monsters, comic books, the other stuff you've done. I mean, we could talk to you for hours about (laughs) creature features. It's really
1: hard to keep it limited in time.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I had a ball, guys. I appreciate the invite and be happy to come back.
0: Excellent. We really appreciate it. Well, Matt, you ready to blast this thing off? We got it. All right. Three, two, one. <laughs> Ignition sequence start 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 zero. all Liftoff, we have a liftoff